This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 268 of The Bugle, audio newspaper for a mercilessly visual world, for the week ending Friday the 9th of May 2014. That's right, week ending. We are now temporarily, at least, switching to a Thursday recording in an effort to make news happen one day sooner, thus giving the planet Earth a crucial competitive advantage on its rivals to help it maintain that number one ranking in the solar system. I'm Andy Zaltzman, live in London. The city that has once again beaten its old Siberian rival Verkoyansk in its annual head-to-head who-can-have-the-warmest-winter-contest, 150 wins in a row, barely even be bothered to celebrate anymore here in London, and in New York City, a 21st-century entertainer in a 20th-century city, using 19th-century technology, a telephone, wearing an 18th-century wig, as he always does for this recording, and with a 17th-century attitude to America, just stop the Dutch getting hold of it, everything else will take care of itself, it's John Oliver! Hello, Andy. Hello, Buglers. Uh, well, uh, uh, the HBO show is up and running, or at the very least, up and walking. The point <laughs> is, it's up. And thank you so much to Buglers who are tuning in, and to Buglers who are not tuning in. Let me simply say this. What the f***? <laughs> You're killing me. I made it clear that I needed every single one of you. What the f*** are you doing? Uh, now, our first two shows have been based around the Indian elections, food labelling, the death penalty, and Sharia law in Brunei. Why? Because I know what people want, Andy. <laughs> and I'm not afraid to give it to them. The people are crying out for a 12-minute piece on the death penalty while they're getting ready for bed on a Sunday night. It's like a warm glass of milk at the end of the day, except it's heated up to boiling point and then thrown straight into your face. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the Indian election piece ended up going viral on YouTube in India. I think today it has over one and a half million views, which is pretty incredible for something that does not involve a rapping kitten. (laughs) And uh, some of the best pushback pointed out that we had potentially got the map uh, of India over my shoulder wrong. And to that, Andy, (laughs) I simply say this. I'm British. (laughs) It is impossible for me to get the borders of India wrong. If I draw them in a certain way, even if they make no geographic sense whatsoever, then that's just the way it is. <laughs> what part of your own turbulent history are you struggling to understand? <laughs> uh, so this is uh, Bugle 268. Coincidentally, the number of clauses in the prenup agreement made between Jesus and Mrs. Christ, according to a recently unearthed biblical manuscript that is unquestionably authentic, found in a municipal waste dump in Minnesota, believed to be the first draft of the Gospel according to St Luke, entitled, Geez, Did You See That? That's before the agents and publishers neutered it, of course. Uh, in this prenup, the future Mrs Belinda Christ apparently stipulated that Jesus was not allowed to metaphorically or literally bring any of his ex-girlfriends back from the dead, have more than ten of his mates round for dinner at any one time, that's why they ended up going out for the Last Supper instead of calling in some falafel, or turn water into wine whilst she was in the bath. Some Christian scholars have doubted the veracity of the script, saying there is no way a genuine first century AD manuscript would have been typed in the font Curls MT, far too teenagey, said the Archbishop of Canterbury. They're also sceptical that uh, the gospel would have been printed on recycled economy A4 paper or include the phrase quality us time. Uh, this uh, is uh, Bugle, as I said, for the week ending Friday the 9th of May. Lest we forget, John, this week has been International Composting Awareness Week. Of course it has. Yep. And uh, how, have, uh, how have you personally marked this, uh, this well, very important been... week? 
fucking aware of it, Andy. Right. That's how I've marked it. And what I've done is that all my rubbish bins, I've just emptied them all over the floor and I've waited. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it's about, isn't it? I'm not sure that is what it's about. I think, I assume uh, that basically it's aimed at eradicating composting, uh, as we have with diseases. You know, any disease awareness week wants to stamp it out. I assume it's the same with... Uh, Composting. The goal is to stamp out all compost from around the world by the year 2075. Um, so if any of you buglers see a big pile of vegetation, please destroy it by whatever means possible before it slowly turns into nutritious mulch that can let plants cheat in growing races. Composting, of course, is a scourge on this planet's uh, long-term future. It prevents carboniferous matter from being eventually compressed in the Earth's crust to create fossil fuels for future generations millions of years from now. How are they going to get around if we've wasted all our vegetable and plant matter making compost just so our daffodils will work next year or grow some giant lobelias instead of making sure our giant 20-foot-high human-robot hybrid descendants can still drive around in some sweet wheels like we do. So do join the No Mate to Mulch campaign this week. Uh, as always, a section of the bugle is going straight in the bin. 2014 marks the 40th anniversary of the invention of the Rubik's Cube by Ernie Rubik, the self-styled Hungarian hexahedron, who accidentally invented the celebrity puzzle whilst working on a prototype for a new rotatable 54-flavour apple. The cube soon became the most popular thing in the universe and spawned spin-off products such as the Rubik snake, the Rubik newt, the Rubik womb, that was fiendishly complicated, I could never work out how to get the placenta to stick, let alone get the baby out. Um, the, you've either got it or you haven't with these things. The Rubik stick, brilliant if you have an easy, easily distracted dog. The Rubik air, that never caught on as the gases proved to be poisonous. And of course, the Rubik Bickerstaff, modelled on the former British trade union leader, Rodney Bickerstaff. And to mark the historic occasion of the 40th anniversary of the Cube, uh, we are giving you a free side of an audio Rubik's Cube. Collect all six sides, then see if you can complete the puzzle. This week, uh, side one, top row, left to right, red, blue, yellow, middle row, yellow, green, orange, and bottom row, white, orange, green. Do collect the remaining... Uh, six sides. Uh, we will be releasing one uh, every anniversary of the Cube that is a multiple of 40. So in just 200 years from now, you'll be able to impress your descendants from way beyond the grave with your amazing puzzle-solving skills. That that genuinely might be in the top five stupidest things that's ever happened on this podcast. I <laughs> and, uh, it's a high bar, that, but uh, that really is utterly ridiculous. That <laughs> has no point. <laughs> Top story this week, get rich quick with these unmissable opportunities. Uh, this is not audio spam, buglers. Uh, these are real wealth creation plans from this week that could make you, the listener, rich beyond your wildest dreams in a matter of days. Matter of days is a figure of speech not meant to relate to A or any number of days, weeks, months or years. Riches are contingent on various economic fluctuations and details of wildest dreams may vary. Ask your accountant if financial problems persist or if your erection lasts longer than four hours. Bank account <laughs> results may vary. The bugle accepts no responsibility for riches won or lost. So, with the economy still in recovery mode, some people have gone off the grid this week to make some money outside the traditional methods of wealth creation of either a bit of sweat and elbow grease or the white-collar fraud of the financial services industry. <laughs> now, the first scheme only works, to be honest, if A, you are an earl, <laughs> B, you own a mountain, and C, you are willing to sell it. Because that is what is currently happening. A British aristocrat 
is attempting to sell off a mountain his family owns to pay off a large inheritance tax bill. And when I read this, Andy, I wasn't sure if I was reading a news story or a movie pitch for a bad Hugh Grant comedy. <laughs> By which I mean a movie pitch for any Hugh Grant comedy. Boom, Andy! <laughs> I've not lost my edge. I'm not afraid to go after late 90s movie stars. So don't say that I am. <laughs> yeah, the mountain in question is in the Lake District. Uh, it's called Blencathra or uh, Saddleback. Um... I think you used to go out with a girl called Blancathra Saddleback, didn't you, in your, uh, did. your Cambridge yeah, she's days? Yeah, lovely girl. Yeah. Mountainous. Yeah. Um, and he's... Uh, apparently, the asking price, John, is yeah. £1.75 for yeah. this uh, this mountain. And as soon as the news of that valuation got out, the Nepalese economy went f***ing mental. <laughs> uh, the, the Earl in question is, the, as you say, the Earl of Lonsdale, Hugh Lowther, uh, and uh, he has placed the 2,850-foot uh, Lake District mountain... Uh, on the market for 1.75 million. He said it was either that or break up the Lonsdale estate, which has been in his family for hundreds of years. And this may be, Andy, one of the least sympathetic tales the recession has yet thrown <laughs> up. It's an absolute disaster. We're barely making ends meet. I can't believe I'm going to say this, family, but we may have to sell the mountain. <laughs> uh, if I owned a mountain, Andy, that would be the first thing I'd tell anyone. John, fact, John, John, w- John, what? John, if... When, John? When? Well, you're right. I have to think like an American. <laughs> yes. When I own a mountain. When I own a mountain and a bomber is trying to tax it away from me, Andy, <laughs> punishing my success. Uh, if I own a mountain, Andy, whenever I got off a plane anywhere in the world and they said anything to declare, I would say, yes, absolutely. And they'd say, have you got any fruits, vegetables or firearms in your possession? And I'd say, no, that's not what I want to declare. What I want to declare is that I own a f***ing mountain. <laughs> Well, that's that's entirely justified, uh, and not yeah. only not only with this deal do you get to own a mountain, you also get to call yourself right. the Lord of the Manor of Threlkeld. Yes. For an extra three hundred grand, you can call yourself Alfrazor the Magnificent. Uh, I, I, I like that title, Andy. <laughs> it's got a ring to it, and that it ring is of a mid-level Game of Thrones character. <laughs> It is I, Lord of the Manor of Threlkeld, son of my father, brother of my sister, daughter of my mother, and owner of a f***ing mountain. <laughs> now put your top back on. What, um, what, what an email address that would be. Lord of the Manor of Threlkeld at yahoo.com. <laughs> but also, not only do you get that, you also get the grazing rights Ooh. for 5,471 ewes. Wow. 732 young sheep and 200 lambs, uh, or wow. even younger sheep. That is a very specific number of ewes, 5,400. There could, must have been some haggling gone into that original deal, John. I don't have any of those, Andy, but I do have a dog, and my dog is definitely in the market for a mounted to shit on. <laughs> so that, that might still be useful. I, I'm starting to wonder if Buglers should find a way to go in on this together, Andy. And part <laughs> of the reason is that there is yet another detail that we haven't mentioned yet, and that is that the new owner will be able to apply for an official coat of arms. <laughs> and you know, what, you know what that means, Andy? A coat of arms can and should mean a coat of penises. <laughs> Who among us can honestly say we have absolutely no interest in sharing the title Lord of the Manor of Threlkeld and scaling the near 3,000-foot peak of Mount <laughs> Eucharist? <laughs> The uh, current Earl of Lonsdale, um, explaining the sale, uh, said, we don't want to have to evict tenanted farmers and other tenants and what have you from their houses <laughs> so we can sell them. Now, uh, to put this in context for our American listeners, what have you is the traditional term used by the British landed gentry for women and children. 
<laughs> but it's, it's just one of these conversations we've all had, John, isn't it? You yeah. know, we've had to sit down in difficult times with our spouse and say, hey, darling, look, I don't know how to say this, but I'm afraid we are... We're absolutely skint. We're on our uppers. We're going to have to sell the house. We're going to have to downsize the car. We're going to have to eat the horse and go on holiday to that bench in the park instead of Mauritius this year. There's nothing else we can do. That's it. The good days are toast, and that toast is being eaten by the taxman with our last jar of family jam. We've still got each other. That's the most important thing. What do you mean, sell my mountain? I'm not f***ing selling my mountain! That is who I am! I'm the guy who owns a mountain! Non-negotiable! <laughs> What? If you make me sell that, you might as well make me sell my head, my penis, and my other mountain. So, <laughs> sorry, did I not tell you I own two mountains? Uh, you know, I, I probably should have kept you in the loop on that one. Well, you're saying we could sell one mountain? I hadn't thought of it like that. I, I, I guess we could, but then again, what is the point of only owning one mountain? <laughs> uh, John Robson, uh, the man who is managing the sale of the mountain, said it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to buy one of the jewels in the Lake District's crown. Uh, and he told the BBC that selling the mountain was unlike anything he'd dealt with before. Yeah, no shit, Andy, because it's a f***ing mountain. <laughs> well, the, uh, the naming rights, as you uh, hinted at uh, earlier on, is uh, a very, very delicate issue in mountains these days. And um, there are suggestions that uh, they could go the way of sports stadiums and uh, we could soon have the world's great peaks, such as the Virgin Everest. Uh, and the Aconcoquia and Mount McKinley in association with MasterCard, down to minor local hills such as the Hoggins Orthopaedic Shoe Sierra and Mount Hungry Nigel's Tasty Eats. Of course, we already have Mount Fuji in Japan, co-owned by the pop stars Red Fu and Warren G. <laughs> and uh, the, the way the housing market works, John, you know that you know it's going for 1.75 million now, but in 20 years' time, whoever buys this mountain is going to be flogging it for 20 million minimum, and people will be complaining that it's really hard for young people to get on the mountain <laughs> ladder, and many of them having to camp out longer and longer on their parents' mountains, which just isn't really ideal in this day and age. But um, also, if mountains are worth this much money, John, it is surely just a matter of time before they turn into the must-have accessory for today's image-conscious celebrity, a status symbol to be obviously deliberately photographed with and flaunted around in the newspapers. In fact, just picking up uh, today's Daily Mail on, on their celebrity page, which uh, is entitled F***ing Pointless, there are rumours that the Hollywood heartthrob Ethan Hawke was seen going to a nightclub with Mount Humphreys, the beautiful 14,000-foot Sierra Nevada peak, whilst in India, the Bollywood starlet Katrina Kaif has angrily denied reports linking her with Nanda Devi, India's 7,800-metre hunky Himalayan stud, after she was photographed by the paparazzi buying some oxygen tanks and crampons in a specialist mountaineering shop in the northern city of Srinagar. We're just friends, claimed a blushing Kaif, who recently split up from long-term partner Mount Kilimanjaro, claiming that whilst she was still friends with the Tanzanian former volcano, long-distance relationships, quotes, were really difficult in their respective lines of work. Shipwreck news now, and uh, look, not everyone has access to a pointy landmass in their profile. <laughs> uh, for everyone else, there is uh, only really one other option coming out of this week, and that is for diving for buried treasure on a shipwreck. <laughs> Classic Plan B. Uh, a US deep ocean exploration firm recovered apparently nearly a thousand ounces of solid gold worth $1.3 million. Um, or, as I now think of it, a pretty good down payment on a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And they did this on a dive to a historic Atlantic Ocean shipwreck uh, dating back to 1857. Uh, the success of this dive has added fuel to the fire of the rumors that there may be tens of millions of dollars still down there on the sunken ship. Apparently, the uh, SS Central America sank in 1857, killing 425 people, triggering one of the world's first financial crises. It was caught in a hurricane 160 miles off South Carolina's coast and was carrying 21 tons of gold, which was intended to prop up the struggling banks of New York. And as a result, its loss created a huge financial panic. And you know what? There is something quite charming about that disaster, Andy, because that is a refreshingly tangible way to cause a massive financial <laughs> panic. The world being brought to the brink of financial implosion due to credit default swaps and the subprime mortgage exposure is something that only really exists on balance sheets. But the world being plunged into financial crisis because a ship full of gold sank to the bottom of an ocean is something that everyone can basically understand. <laughs> 21 tons of gold, as you say, um, in 1857. Uh, so, historically, I think that was when the Yankees started uh, trying to get the money together for Alex Rodriguez's latest contract. And, uh, as you said, this is a, that's a lot of gold to put in one single boat, John. And uh, what I like about this disaster, it is, is basically a physical metaphor for the history of human economics. Trusting a notoriously sinkable vessel, a boat... And piling enough gold in it so that in the event that it did crash, it took the entire f***ing global economy with it. Uh, questions have arisen over what will happen uh, if this gold is recovered. There have already been uh, legal disputes dating back to when some of it was recovered uh, over 25 years ago. Um, and uh, the problem is, John, this gold is from 1857, suggesting that it would probably be racist gold, uh, misogynistic and probably homophobic gold as well. And I'm not sure we want that kind of gold infecting our international um, system. Uh, from the 1988 recovery operation, 39 insurance companies filed a lawsuit <laughs> claiming that because they paid damages in the 19th century for the lost gold, they had the right to get the gold that was dug up in 1988. Now, they'd been sitting on that complaint for a very long time, and that, that is a dangerous legal precedent. I mean, you think the Italian economy has never really fully recovered from the sack of Rome in 410 AD and all the insurance claims that flooded and after that for uh, Visigoth damage. And uh, if they ever find all that secret loot we've got locked away in Britain uh, that we ha harvested from around the world, we'll be absolutely done for economically, locked away, of course, in secret glass-fronted display cabinets in large public museums, hiding in plain sight. It's always the best way. And the Catholic Church, John, could be launching massive legal uh, actions in the event that it does turn out that Jesus was wrongfully convicted. That one's still going through the courts, uh, even if it was only on a technicality. Because in the crucial uh, messianic in charge of a donkey charge, they actually named the wrong donkey on the charge sheet. So they uh, named Jesus' old donkey Handsome, whereas in fact the offences were committed on his new donkey, Brownie. Um, he'd sold Handsome to Judas Iscariot uh, with some dodgy paperwork that suggested it had clipped clopped 5,000 fewer miles than it had. Sure enough, the bloody thing conked out on Iscariot halfway through a long journey back from yet another disappointing surf weekend on the Sea of Galilee. Well, disappointing for everyone apart from Jesus. Look, guys, I haven't even got a board. <laughs> Whee! And uh, Iscariot always found it hard to uh, forgive his old mucker. There you go.
Restaurant news now, and celebrity chef Scluton Malvane has reacted with incandescent fury to being omitted from the recently published list of the world's 50 best restaurants. The list is topped by Copenhagen's Noma once again and also features renowned nosheries such as Mugaritz in San Sebastian, the Ledbury in London, Heston Blumenthal's The Fat Duck on the M4 motorway, basically, and Bertie Beefcake's Big Burger Bonanza in Mogadishu, the world's first triple Michelin-starred burger van, owned by the former bodybuilder Bertrand Harpoon, whose burgers include his signature thrice-slap-shotted puck of ruthlessly executed guilt-free cow, served between two sesame-besieged mattresses of yeast-inflated and heat-metamorphed wheat-influenced dough, besourced with a deconstructed and reconstructed ketchupine rouge de tomato squigé, comfortingly blanketed uh, with a rectangulant of time-ripened, coagulated, udder-originating lactotum of maternal bovoid, or to give it its nickname, the cheeseburger also comes with a slight slice of gherkin. Malvain, however, slammed the judges for being, quote, afraid of the new after they overlooked his newly opened restaurants, the Coopery in Gloucestershire, in which diners sit in giant coops and are served by waiters and pigeon outfits flying around the restaurant with jetpacks on and vomiting partially pre-digested dishes onto their customers' plates. And they also overlooked his Parisian newbie, Le Conscience de Maux, in which diners are played the dying thoughts of the creatures on their plates, as voiced by leading actors such as Gerald Depardieu, Isabelle Huppert, Sean Connery, who does a sensational haggis, Michel Platini, Joel Batz, John Oliver, and Jean-Baptiste Lagrange, or Monsieur Crevette, the self-styled Marlon Brando of prawn impersonators. The sensational food is reported to be 12% tastier with a backstory, and diners found that any minor qualms about the mechanised slaughter of their dinner are, quote, swiftly dissipated by the succulent, succulent perfection of Malvane's cooking, and the comforting knowledge that most of the animals were only too pleased to take the trip to the abattoir, to bring a bit of variety to their numbingly repetitive daily schedule of eat, shit, eat, shit, eat, shit, get put in a shed, snooze. These fuckers don't know real food even when it comes straight out of their asses the next day, complained Malvane. If any of these top 50 restaurants claim to be serving a dish better than my intensively cross-examined soul of long-suspected lamb, justifiably incarcerated in a confinement solitaire within a potato-padded cell of its own ribs, retributively punished with a gush of red-currant tears, they can go fuck themselves. They are f***ing liars. Malvane was also furious that his pioneering zero-gravity floaterant, Cosmochomp, was excluded from consideration due to it being located on the International Space Station. If they're only going to consider restaurants on Earth, he said, they should f***ing say so on their entry form. Your emails now, uh, and we have an email here from uh, Ben. Uh, he says, Dear Chris and Andy and John, I've been a Bugle listener for a couple of years now, and I've gradually noticed that it gives one a rather unique view on many of life's more awkward or difficult situations, often in some inappropriate way. That's what we're here for, Andy. <laughs> um, easily the most inappropriate of these to date occurred last Saturday morning around 9am. I work at a pretty expensive restaurant, which also has some private suites attached. It's a fairly regular occurrence to get minor celebrities, footballers, etc. staying with us. Serving them professionally and courteously is generally just a case of treating them like any other customer. This became far more difficult last week when we hosted a guest who was more than your average soap star. Alarm bell should have been ringing when I spotted the name P. Middleton on the reservation sheet, but I didn't. So I was taken completely off guard when her royal sisterness walked in the door with her latest squeeze. The temptation to shout, Oh, Pepper! was very nearly overwhelming as I showed them to a table, took their order and served their breakfast, full English, poached eggs. Oh, Pepper, good choice. Um, 
Unsurprisingly, the rest of the ship was a bit of a blur, as I'm not certain I didn't embarrass myself greatly. In order to increase my career prospects, I've decided to stop listening to the bugle, particularly just before work, and I'm petitioning my MP to get all three of you fitted with a public health warning. This podcast can severely impair your ability to act like a grown-up in public. You're sincerely Ben. Oh, Pippa. Oh, poached eggs. Oh, English rose. Well, there were allegations surfacing in the press this week that uh, at the uh, the famous uh, royal wedding, um, she actually was using a counterfeit backside. <laughs> An extraordinary uh, allegations. This could be the biggest uh, biggest scandal in the royal family. Well, since uh, you know, Edward and Wallace Simpson, maybe even since uh, since Charles the First and his little uh, allergy to axes. Who knows? Uh, do keep your emails coming into info at the buglepodcast.com. Don't forget to check out our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash the hyphen bugle. And uh, if you want to help raise the money for the Bugle Mountain at 1.75 million, then do take out your voluntary subscription at the buglepodcast.com, where you can also find all the must have or could have bugle merch. World Cup countdown now, and it's uh, just five weeks to go until the World Cup. Uh, America, of course, have qualified alongside uh, England. I imagine the excitement is ratcheting up in America, John. Can you just explain the scenes of mayhem on the streets? Oh, it's huge, Andy. If uh, uh, excitement for the World Cup, uh, you mean excitement for the NBA basketball playoffs. (laughs) Uh, uh... That's kind of their World Cup, in a way. Some uh, injury news. Portuguese star Cristiano Ronaldo tweaked a hamstring uh, for Real Madrid this week, but should be fit for the tournament by also suffering a perforated quiff whilst trying on a new hat in a backstreet milliners in the Spanish capital. Uh, Real Madrid boss Carlo Ancelotti explained, I've told the players not to try hats on at this stage of the season. Damage to their coiffure could result in three or four hours repairing it at the local hairdressers. Cristiano has his done by a lady called Pam, whom he flies over from Nantwich three times a week. Uh, meanwhile, Guatemala midfielder Sancho Miliano Guavacado is ruled out of the tournament after getting his finger stuck in a mousetrap whilst trying to explain the offside uh, rule to his wife using captured rodents. Uh, Russia's Vigor Chichikinichkin uh, of the Russian uh, champion Spartak Moscow out with a suspected lost boot. He can't find it anywhere. No nonsense, Russia boss Fabio Capello will not let the midfielder play in his plimsolls. It's not 1950, said the stroppy Italian. Brazilian goalkeeper Turnipino won't be selected after FIFA ruled that his gloves, uh, the fingers of which are made out of uh, boiled turnips, are incompatible with their commercial sponsorship deals with McDonald's. Turnips are not part of FIFA's core value, said Sepp Blatter, chowing down on a no-quo. That's a nugget of questionable origin. And, uh, USA squad player, imagine this being big news uh, in the States, on Johan Santana, ruled out due to being a Venezuelan baseball player. The Baltimore Orioles star pitcher was expected to be a backup for Clint Dempsey, but despite his $20 million-plus-a-year pay packet, is neither American nor a football player. And uh, now, first, in our countdown of the World Cup's greatest goals, at number three, Argentina 1978. What a goal! Oh, a terrific goal! That is a beautiful goal! The frame of the goals at the 1978 World Cup in Argentina had a simple construction, posts and a crossbar, with just 
two short horizontal poles sticking out horizontally backwards from the top corners where the posts met the crossbar. The gold net was strung extremely tautly down from these prongs to be fixed on the ground about three metres behind the frame of the goal. Thus from the side the goals had the elegant shape of a sail on a sailing boat. The diagonal angle of the net and the tautness with which it was strung down to the ground meant that the balls entering the net for a goal high up were deflected swiftly, spectacularly downwards, with the ball often staying within the confines of the goal rather than bouncing out again as if they were afraid of being scored. You really knew a goal had been scored in Argentina. 78, no side netting confusion for these brilliantly designed masterpieces of goal architecture. The pile driven 30 yarder was given a pleasingly unarguable aesthetic. Whack, goal, no arguments. Whilst low ground shots gave the net an abbreviated but sharp ripple effect, again decisively signalling goal. Far removed from today's homogenised goals with their drab corporate uniformity of design and net bulge, the 1978 Argentina goals were classics of their time, unmistakably distinctive, and truly some of the greatest goals the World Cup has seen. Next week on the World Cup's Greatest Goals, the sinuously, almost erotically curved goals of Chile 1962. Oh yeah! Like Jane Mansfield in a fishnet singlet. Good God, yeah! No wonder Garincha kept banging them in. And as the official uh, broadcasters of the uh, FIFA World Cup, we will tell you all the scores as they happen through the tournaments in June and July. You will not be able to hear them anywhere else. So that is it for this week's uh, Bugle. Um, sorry about the uh, telephone sound quality uh, coming from uh, from the States. We hope to rectify that for future uh, recordings. Until next week, Buglers, goodbye. Bye!